I think the we could all agree that the you know with nearly four trillion dollars being spent on healthcare across the country today, that uh, uh, the the rate of growth in healthcare perhaps is um, not sustainable. And if it keeps uh, growing at that pace, you know it has you know impacts to the economy and in impacts to us as individuals in terms of how many people can access care. Data, artificial intelligence, the metaverse, crypto and Web3, and quantum computing are just a few of the technology innovations that are changing the way we live, work, and experience the universe. I am your host, Ganesh Padmanabhan, and this is Stories in AI, a podcast where we explore the various facets of technologies like AI, its impact on individuals, organizations, and the society. You will hear from a variety of experts and practitioners, their personal stories, their best practices, and advice to put technology to work. I hope you enjoy this engaging conversations. Now, before we begin, a note about our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Experian, whom you may know as the Consumer Credit Bureau, but they are at heart a data company. When you're buying a car or home, sending your kids to college, or borrowing to grow your business, Experian is most likely helping you behind the scenes. They unlock the power of data to make better decisions, get access to financial services, and to prevent crime, unlocking a whole world of opportunities for individuals and organizations. Find out more at Experian.com. You're going to love this episode. In today's episode, I speak with the Rajiv Rananki of Elevon's Health, previously Anthem. Rajiv serves as the Senior Vice President for Elevon's Health and is the President of Carillon Digital Platforms, both uh, legacy Anthem, where he's responsible for creating and driving plans to commercialize digital capabilities for consumers, care providers, and the entire health ecosystem. Uh, they're reinventing care delivery, operations, and interactions. Um, now, Rajiv is amazing. He's imagining a future of healthcare uh, by harnessing the power of AI and data to provide consumers with predictive, proactive, and personalized insights to their health, right? He's got 20 plus years of experience in the innovation-driven industry. Um, he's a thought leader. He was uh, he served as a chief digital officer for Anthem, um, where he started that. Prior to that, he was at Deloitte and a set of uh, early-stage companies before that and stuff. So Rajiv is a very, very, very um, amazing thought leader. And you can hear, the, not just it's not just for the thoughts, but what he has demonstrated, what uh, Anthem and Elevance Health has demonstrated and what they can do by taking on a digital-first mindset and driving industry-scale transformation in the business is remarkable. And Rajiv shares that story. We had a delightful conversation, and I'm sure you enjoyed it too. Rajiv, welcome to Stories in AI. So glad to have you here. Thanks, Ganesh. A pleasure to be here and uh, look forward to our discussion. Now, I'm, I was looking forward for this for almost a year now. So hey, thank you for taking time on your busy schedule. Why don't you kick us off with your story and your background? Both, you know, how did you get into tech and how did you get into healthcare? And give us your story. Sure. Um, so, Mechanical engineering uh, as an undergraduate degree, and then after that, uh, got a master's in, in computer science, and then uh, spent a number of years in uh, in the Silicon Valley uh, with tech startups, uh, being being a part of uh, you know several small and, and larger you know tech companies in the Bay Area, 
and then just happened to um, you know stumble into healthcare uh, more from a from a tech perspective uh, in the uh, you know the early two uh, thousands, uh, just as uh, companies were looking to to leverage um, internet based technologies at scale and and start to think about how would you kind of extend the reach of of healthcare companies which which had been doing a great job in the in the bricks and mortar world to to really being more digital and more online and and leverage some of the the, the playbooks of, of big tech. And so it was right at the intersection of that. And then one thing led to the another. And, um, you know, 20 years later, still in healthcare, still uh, attempting to, to solve uh, some of the similar problems, but uh, optimistic about kind of what's in front of us. That is awesome. And, you know, and by the way, uh, I'm an undergrad in mechanical engineering, too. And I, I flunked my master's in computer science. I didn't really finish it, so I dropped out. Well, but you it's interesting to say... <laughs> no, I know, right? So, but but I did start in computers and programming too, and it's fascinating. And and I I like to say, right, you were one of the early, you know, cool kids who actually thought healthcare was cool, and there's a huge opportunity to make a difference, and went in. Nowadays, it's the next cool thing for people to hang out. So all the cool kids now, I blanketly say, hang out in healthcare. So do I. So uh, so it's pretty fascinating. Thanks for that background. You know, it, it, and for the audience who haven't actually, there's a lot more detail you go into on in your background in your book, UNAI, that uh, we published, I think, last year, the year before. Um, it's it's fascinating. So, yeah, right. So, uh, no, it's awesome. So in one, one thing you talk about in the book as well, and I want to just start off with that question, right? You mentioned this notion of we live in a in an exponential age, right? We live in a where there's all these, the, 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 the technology adoption curves are not linear anymore, right? And the, the progress is not linear anymore. Explore that for me a little bit. You know, what is the exponential age? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, for the, for the tech uh, audiences in, in, your, um, in your viewers there, uh, Ganesh, I think they'll all sort of remember the Moore's Law that, that famously postulated back in um, the early 70s that uh, the price performance of, of um, you know, semiconductor chips on, on motherboards is going to double at roughly price performance in roughly 18 months 18 or so. months, yeah. Right. So, and that, uh, you know, famously encapsulated as Moore's Law has largely held true um, in the semiconductor, you know, business for the last, um, you know, 40, you know, plus years. Now, I think if you map um, other technologies like artificial intelligence or blockchain or smartphones, for that matter, uh, things like nanotechnology uh, and other things, they all have a similar sort of uh, exponential sort of growth trajectory to them, which is that at first they seem small and insignificant, but their maturity, their capability, their ability to, to perform at scale seems to roughly mirror sort of Moore's law of doubling, you know, every year to, to 18 months. Yep. So that the good news there then is that uh, for us as, as consumers of, of any, you know, sort of industry, but in particular in healthcare, I uh, could take uh, some sense of optimism from the fact that these technologies will continue to grow and mature and will give companies and, and uh, hospitals, doctors and caregivers and consumers access to a tremendous amount of technology at, at their fingertips, ultimately to simplify the consumer experience, improve the mm -hmm. lives of, of consumers and make our healthcare system, you know, much, much better, you know, than what it is today. And that's kind of what we're, uh, you know, working on at, at Elevance. Uh, but that's kind of broadly why sort of I characterize the, that era that we're living in as, as being the exponential era. Got it. And, and I think, you know, like you, you made a couple of different, um, uh, and then earlier when we were talking, you were mentioning this too, right? One is the whole 
linear curve, doubling is not necessarily linear. It's already exponential if it's doubling every 18 months or 12. And right. then it's it's hard for people to also fathom the rate of change. You know, you look back and say, yeah, yeah, we evolved quite a bit. But, you know, think about it like from a, you know, I, I, I remember that old thing, like, you know, it, it took 50 years for the telephone to hit like uh, 50 million households. And it took three days for Angry Birds when that game came out to actually hit 50 million users. So it's the, the rate of adoption is a whole different curve and so forth too, right? Um, and thanks for, you know, uh, so is, it a, is, is the exponential age a characteristic of the rate of change of things around you? Or is it, an, or is it a, a set of technologies that have far more uh, you know, potential or potency than it did, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? I think it's a bit of both. You know, I think it's the rate of change. I think is is ever increasing, uh, but the perception of the rate of change that that we as humans perceive continues to be somewhat linear. You know, that's kind of what's mm -hmm. uh, you know codified into our DNA, having you know sort of you know grown up um, in the sub-Saharan deserts and, and deserts and, and and evolving from there. It's we're programmed to think linear, and it's hard for mm -hmm. us to think about concepts and change as having that doubling effect and at growing at a pace that that um, you know we don't necessarily naturally think about so that's that's one for sure yeah and then there's also the the convergence of, of various technologies uh, as you know uh, computing power is just ever increasing and you know there's more power um, you know and more computing capacity in our smart smartphone today than there was perhaps in the supercomputer just just a few years ago sure and yeah. so if you imagine that right so more compute power at your fingertips the cost of storage of, of information and data is is nominally, you know, maybe even close to zero. You know, imagine all the pictures you send around and all the mm -hmm. ubiquitous storage you have access to and all social media platforms. So yeah. the, the cost of storage, compute capacity is increasing, the cost of storage is decreasing. And then there's the capabilities themselves are getting more and more sophisticated. Uh, artificial intelligence can do more. Uh, things like blockchain can do more, you know, things like the metaverse are coming into coming into view very nicely. So if you take all of these these technologies and converse them on a foundation where computing is growing at an ever faster, a computing capacity is growing at an ever faster pace and storage is decreasing at an ever faster pace, then you've got, you know, sort of a, a, a unique mix that uh, ultimately I think will fundamentally reshape all the industries that we're in, you know, reshape commerce, reshape, uh, reshape retail, financial services, and um, of course, healthcare. Yeah. No, it's interesting. And I think, you know, I'll add one more dimension to it is actually also the, you know, the technology was also just the playground of an elite few hmm. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, right? You have to be like, you know, in computer science, doing research where you have the ability to build the infrastructure, then put the software on it, write code and so forth. Now it's broadly applicable with the internet, and you know so you, you mentioned blockchain, but the whole no notion of now you can tap into more human capital through technology capital to go make that also makes a huge difference. So you know you're also kicking off. So this 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 whole um, series of stories in AI is actually all about inspiring more and more people to get into being a part of this powerful technology curve and the adoption, driving the adoption, getting educated, and contributing to it. Because it's our future that we all need to own together. And you're kicking off a series on AI and healthcare. So before we go into AI, talk about healthcare. Is our healthcare system broken? I don't know that it's broken, Ganesh. I think uh, if if you 
I, I think people tend to talk about it negatively, and I think perhaps yes. uh, that's because we we tend to focus on the things that are wrong, but but rather that's than good. you know taking a more holistic view of it. If you think about it, when when people want access to care, regardless of which part of the world you live in, uh, the U.S. is a beacon for innovation, for creating, you know, finding new forms of care. Uh, all the cutting edge research that's happening in cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and all the all the chronic conditions, drug discovery, the incredible amount of innovation that happens in, in life sciences, all of that uh, is are all really good things. And what, what we find is that when one unfortunately or not has cancer or any other you know, disease like that, the, the care that the US system is able to provide is unparalleled. And there's strong evidence to, to support all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that being said, you know, no system is perfect, right? You know, we need to make um, access to care more affordable, more equitable, and make, make it available to more of the population. I think the we could all agree that, uh, you know, with nearly $4 trillion being spent on healthcare across the country today, that uh, uh, the, the rate of growth in healthcare perhaps is um, not sustainable. And if it yeah. keeps uh, growing at that pace, you know, it has, you know, impacts to the economy and in impacts to us as individuals in terms of how many people can access care. So I think uh, there are some things to fix in our system. And, um, you know, but I think the broad brush of it is that it, it works for a vast majority of the country. I think the model of private and public partnerships to improve health and ultimately drive better innovation. I think there's, those are many things that I think are, are a, kind of a, a bright light in our country. Uh, with that being said, I think we have to build on the good and you know make it even better. No, it's you know I I, I like the way you frame that uh, thing too, right? I mean you're right. Everybody loves to appeal to the amygdala complex and you know focus on the negatives and say oh it's broken, completely needs to be transformed and stuff. But the reality is, as you said, the quality of care that we this country affords to everybody and uh, you know provides for everybody as an option is unparalleled. The, the interconnected nature of the ecosystem, the amount of dollars that's going into research and the cutting edge nature of it is great. There's definitely an incentive alignment problem, right? You know, for sure. There is the notion, I think you, you rightly put it, it's the equitable, uh, you know, providing equitable care, affordability, accessibility for everybody and making sure you're building a larger participatory loop that everybody gets the same quality of care across the spectrum. That's a big opportunity. And, and, you know, and I totally agree with that. And then that's where technologies like AI and blockchain comes into play, right? So uh, explain to a peer, and I know this industry is still, in my experience at least, uh, there is a lot of innovation happening, a lot of thought leaders there, but it's still a lot of folks are trying to grab their head around what is this powerful technology called artificial intelligence? Why does it matter to healthcare? And how can you solve all of these problems with AI? So educate this audience as if you're talking to a peer, in the industry and talk about like why AI and what is AI for that matter for this context and how do how can we use that to solve some of these uh, problems as examples? Yeah, uh, great question. I think, Ganesh, and I think I like the, the way you framed it, you know, and to me, artificial intelligence or, or any uh, technology that does afford scale and efficiency, I think perhaps uh, has a similar story. And to me, that is that uh, ultimately healthcare is about enhancing the human to human interaction, whether it's between a doctor and a patient at a time of, at a time of need and a time of a, a critical moment in a person's life, or it's, uh, it's a consumer and a healthcare advocate or a customer service uh, agent that, that's kind of supporting that interaction. Unlike other industries, the health interactions, whether it's service oriented or it's care oriented, 
uh, tend to be one of heightened emotion because you're obviously you're dealing with with a health issue for you or a loved one or your family and uh, that interaction's got to be seamless frictionless and uh, delightfully uh, personalized and we would all agree that that's far from the case today i mean yep. i think there are pockets of those interactions and um, uh, we just need to take those pockets and make it ubiquitous so okay. how do we do that which means that we could either have a unlimited number of physicians and clinical capacity and customer service agents to to serve the needs of the population but then uh you know healthcare will be only affordable to the far and few and yep. uh, not not every uh the price point of concierge medicine for example is so high that it you know, only the few elite can afford sense. it it's not something that the, the country in general can afford it so how do we take that how do we take personalized service, how do we take a delightfully personalized experience and make it available to uh, to everyone in the country? And to do that, what we have to start with is, is applying technologies like artificial intelligence to automate processes that perhaps, um, you know, do not require that human, human touch. So for example, processing of claims, you know, could that be automated? A lot of companies in our industry, you know, have um, automation rates in, in the mid eighties or high eighties. Can we crank that up to the mid '90s, and thus freeing up capacity to focus on the human-human interactions? Uh, there are lots of um, things that are routine in terms of of questions that consumers have about their bills or about the status of the claim or making appointments and things like that. All of those things could be automated using uh, capabilities and technologies like artificial intelligence, ultimately to free up enough of the human capacity to focus on the things that matter in in the lives of our consumers and our, and our patients. So I think uh, the first form and the most sort of frequent application of AI, I think, is in the automation of tasks that are routine and uh, replicable and repeatable. And then I think, but that's not the end of it. I mm -hmm. think what happens is as you're you're using AI and machine learning and techniques like that to automate the, the routine tasks, there's an immense amount of data that that uh, that's available and insights are available in those processes mm -hmm. that then could be used towards then personalizing the experiences, you know, so to, to every time a patient is seeing, seeing a, a doctor, why not have all of the insights that are, you know, available longitudinally about that patient available to the doc, make yep. sure that the patient is informed about what questions to ask. And then following the visit and whether it's, you know, you know, for a surgery or it's, and it's for a, or, or an annual wellness visit, that there are digital breadcrumbs kind of leading up to it and following that to, to facilitate an ongoing engagement between the doctor and the patient. So that really is kind of the power of the of AI and technologies like that, which is to automate the things that are non-value add, let's say, mm -hmm. and uh, ultimately emphasize the uh, the human to human interaction in such a way that uh, it amplifies the the time and and the outcome of those those interactions. No, it's it's um it's it's fascinating. I love the way you you centered it around what's uniquely core about healthcare as an industry, and you know, uh, about which is the human to human interaction, right? And I think, uh, and I, I like I I'm, I'm CEO of Autonomize, a healthcare oriented AI company, and what we actually talk about is like, look, I mean, healthcare is the largest industry with the largest amount of knowledge workers, and there's a reason for it. Right, because it's a, it's not just a, you know completely automatable. Because you got to empower. What really makes it strong is the human knowledge 
that makes a process and interaction a lot more richer, right? So you can't just do automate content in there. You've got to pair content with context to go drive these decisions. And I love the framing of that. And I think I, I love that as a, what you also provided is a roadmap for healthcare innovators to thinking about how do I actually use this powerful technology to go do it? So focus on the core thing, which is a human to human interaction. If you're a provider, you want to ensure that you're clinician or doctors are spending more time with the patients face-to-face than clicking through an EHR system, right? If you're a, a payer like, you know, you guys are, you want to make sure your care coordinators are spending less time doing paperwork and processing different, you know, medical documentations and prior authorization requests and stuff and focusing more on care coordination, you know, getting the customer, getting the member to the right care setting at the right time, proactively managing their health and so forth. Like, you know, this whole opportunity is in front of that. Even we see this even in pharma, for example, and life sciences. Well, I mean, if you look at a play, you know, clinical development, a drug launch process, and the amount of calories being spent on doing the same thing over and over again for clinical trials, coordinating clinical trials, you know, no wonder it takes like you know ten to fifteen years and two billion dollars to launch a drug, right? So there is all these pockets of opportunities, and I love the way you you really framed it because I think for every healthcare innovator that's in the you know in the audience listening to this. I think it provides that core thing. Like if there's one thing that's central to healthcare, and I strongly believe in that too, is a human-to-human interaction. Now you start looking at it and say, how do I optimize all my energies and dollars into that? What do I need to take off the table so I can reallocate in there? Right? And that's where the, the, the framework comes in. Uh, I love it. I, I think that's, a, that's an amazing um, um, uh, answer to on that question. Now, one question is like... Um, and you made some examples on like areas and specifically on the payer side. And we talked about like, you know, claim process, automation, stuff like that too. What are some of the risks that you see? I mean, there's a lot of talk around like, you know, so AI um, on the one hand, you know, we both agree on the fact that it's like, yes, it's artificial intelligence, but it's more powerful when you empower and augment the human in the loop to do something better than they that they already are really uniquely suited to do, right? But there's still, you're dealing with data, you're dealing with a lot of moving systems, if you will. What are some of the risks that you see in the approach? What should the leaders think about? Uh, it's a good question, Ganesh. So I think the, um, you know, first and foremost, I think the, the AI is only as good as the data that, that kind of feeds it. And yeah. so, you know, partial data, incomplete data, inequitable data, data not representative of, of the, the broader population, you know, then perhaps we, we run the risk of, automating something at scale and perpetuating something perhaps that was limited by by humans making decisions and therefore not ultimately being scalable yep. uh, to to applying you know tech at scale and and perhaps automating something at scale that that uh, shouldn't be automated yep. uh, or is, is flawed in terms of the approach to the automation so I think there's a huge risk in terms of, of not perpetuating the things that are currently uh, suboptimal in our healthcare system by automating them at scale. Uh, so before we embark on any you know, initiative, uh, for example, at Elevance, uh, we, we make sure that the, the data set that represents the problem we're trying to solve is, in fact, representative of the, of the reality of the population that we serve. And, and you do that by making sure that the experts and folks who understand the data spend time on it, you know, do things without automation and manually to make sure that you have the right ground truth, right? That, exactly right, Ganesh. So I think... Uh, what we've noticed is on average, uh, our AI initiatives, we spend 80% of the time on, on data, data prep, data integrity, data quality, 
yep. data wrangling in general to, to make sure that the right uh, inputs are available to, you know, to, to the algorithms that we're developing. And then, um, then also the, the talent that then trains the algorithms and the human capital that works with those algorithms to, to make sure that uh, techniques like supervised learning and reinforcement learning uh, also similarly account for the human bias that naturally exists. Right. Yep. So, uh, for instance, if there's only one type of demographic of human resources that are training an algorithm, it's likely that inadvertently you're going to bring in your own perspectives to that, you know, right, wrong or indifferent uh, to to make it more broadly equitable to, to the general population. The talent and the workforce itself has to be diverse in order yeah. to, to account for for um, implicit bias and things like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All those things. And as you know, it's uh, it's easier said than done. Uh, you know, it, hiring women in, in tech and, and AI is hard. Uh, so there's got to be continual efforts to make sure that we we're able to get that population. Uh, we have a severe underrepresentation of African-American talent in engineering. We have a severe underrepresentation of Latinx talent, you know, I think in engineering and so on and so forth. Several, you know, under un, underrepresented minorities, I think, um, are generally underrepresented in a more acute level in in STEM and in engineering in particular. So there is a risk of us uh, like a subset then creating solutions for the many. Mm -hmm. uh, and in doing that, I think there's a, a disproportionate onus to make sure we're not sort of perpetuating in a, in a, an implicit or a subconscious bias in that. So the risk there. And then there's also the risk of, of uh, you know, black boxes making, you know, decisions. And, um, you know, having the transparency and explainability around the black box, uh, you know, is, is paramount to making sure that there's trust across the system. You know, otherwise, I think uh, we run the risk of, of some of the backlash that, that big tech has had uh, in, in, in sort of some of the, the social media applications of, of AI yep. and perpetuating that in healthcare. And I think the bar for us is much higher uh, because we are... Uh, in the in the midst of making care decisions, in the midst of serving people at the most vulnerable, you know. Yep. So I think all of those things are risks that definitely can be mitigated. Uh, but sometimes I think, as technologies uh, technologists, we could fall in love with with the tech and ignore yep. the the rest of the implications and just run away with it. And that's just a recipe for you know sort of regrettable decisions down the road. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. I mean, and I think just to summarize some of the things that you said, like like lots of lots of golden nuggets here. I think, look, to, you know, you started off with this premise, and I love the way you, you framed it again, right? Which is technology is or like AI, is a is a is a scale factor, right? It's a leverage factor wherein you can say, if you want to do good with AI, you can do a lot of good very immediately. If you make a mistake with AI, you can make a lot of those mistakes almost instantaneously. If you want to do bad with AI, you can also perpetuate the bad, like knowingly, right? And most people, we would all like to believe that they have the right intentions, but then you also have to marry the process and the ingredients with the right intentions. So that's the, but that being the premise, I think, you know, uh, you, you touched upon a few different areas. One is, how do you make sure that you're looking at this from a perspective of like data and human centricity, making sure you're being very conscious of the fact that you could introduce bias and in decisions. So how do you really look at it across the value chain, whether it's in the data prep stage or if you're checking quality of the data, checking the bias that is implicit in the data and so forth. And then, you know, I love that part that you talked about, the diversity of the builders themselves. And, you know, we as technologists like to go fast and break things and move on. 
but you know you're not introducing you're introducing implicit bias in the system just by having uh, a non-diverse team that is actually leading it and you're very good call outs on women in tech you know uh colored uh you know uh, uh tech population all should be huge focus for any innovators who want to do things at scale and then lastly i think the black box decisions and um uh, you know, it, it being have, having the the ability to actually explain decisions, reason across that, because one thing to look at a picture and say it's a cat or a dog, totally different thing when you're defending a $80 million lawsuit because of a bad care decision, right? So, uh, but then I think the one thing I would add to this, and you said that, and like the t- technologies go in this fast, uh, in this pace, but what happens in the real world is slightly different. I think the, the yeah, I think I had Deeraj Pandey on the show, and he was the one who coined this thing about, like AI, if you really think about it, the other side of the coin of AI is design, really good intentional design, right? How do you really, and so it, it goes with, how do I drive adoption to the particular product or the project that we're building? How do you make sure that the experience is in a way, manner that the users feel the trust that is actually, you know, they, they feel a trusted relationship to go do it. So all of that can, you can actually go package into as design. So technology is more than just the technology right? and AI is more than just like having the, the smartest machine learning algorithm. On that note, right? Um, you know, let's let's dive a little deep on your Elevance and Anthem and now Elevance experience. You led a pretty massive digital transformation across this, you know, historic company, if you will, right? And you know, the results are stunning, and you, yeah, you know, it's been it's reflective in in your earnings reports and everywhere as well. Talk a little bit about like what was the journey about, like, and and how, uh, and you probably have touched a lot of that thing in there. And what was the toughest part of that journey? And where are you in that journey right now? Yeah, a great question, and thanks thanks for the for, for the compliments on on the work so far. the uh, The journey is nowhere complete, uh, Ganesh. I think uh, we've we've come a long way, and in in some ways, uh, you know, so so AI and, and the use of these technologies at uh, at Elevance is not new. You know, we, we've been uh, at the forefront of innovation for for the better part of a, of a good decade now. And um, you know, as with any uh, sort of technology transformations at large companies, it kind of goes through several phases, right? So I'd say that uh, as Gail, our CEO, came on board about uh, you know five years ago, uh, she played a you know placed a great uh, placed a great degree of emphasis on you know let's try to adopt a digital first mindset at this company, which is you know you know she famously put it as let's give you know digital technologies the right of first refusal in solving our problems. <laughs> Whether it's uh, you know yeah. automating a process or it's, it's creating the interactions again with, with this notion that you know we want to emphasize the human to human interaction and, and personalize and simplify the, the consumer experience. So so that sort of being our true north, uh, I don't know if that there's ever going to be a time where we're going to say yep you know let's hang up our uh, you know our shoes and we're done here. I think there's always going to be the next thing to go solve. But the way in which we organized the work was to say one let's just kind of get more efficient. You know let's apply AI to core sort of, uh, you know, administrative processes that that drive a lot of labor uh, in, within our company. And as you'd imagine, those are things like, um, you know, adjudicating on prior authorizations or claims or uh, doing underwriting or, or any of the other processes that, that comprise the value chain of a, of a health plan. Uh, so a lot of time and effort was around, well, let's just go get after it and, and modernize and, and automate and uh, use AI to, to make those, those things more, more efficient. And as uh, we were as we were starting to see the the fruits of that labor, and uh, we're able to to then fr- and make our company more efficient, we're, we've been systematically reinvesting 
those those efficiencies in improving you know our consumer experience. Uh, so, for example, uh, during COVID, we launched a, a major initiative to bring digital and virtual care uh, more effectively in a more integrated manner to our consumers. And um, a lot of that uh, starts with with a triage process that that's uh, very much a AI you know set of capabilities that interact with uh, with our consumers to understand you know what is um, actually the issue you know with with uh, what that's causing them to reach out to a doc, and then triage that and give them options to to text with a doc, email a doc, have a video visit, or you know schedule an appointment and see someone in person. But what that's doing is it's it's really providing the consumer with more information as to the symptoms they have and how it compares with everyone else that perhaps had similar symptoms and then provide them with options on what to do next. And then for docs, it's giving them a lot more information on the triage so that they don't have to start with the normal questions of what happened, what's your family history, what's your drug history, you know, what's your patient history, yep. all of that's available at their fingertips. So then if you think about the the progression here, which is automate the administrative processes. And then uh, as enough of that is happening, you know, sort of double down on, on improving the consumer experience by, by providing better administrative experience, which we do via Sydney, our app, our portals, all of mm -hmm. our digital channels, like our voice assistants. But every one of those channels is infused with a set of personalization capabilities that are enabled by, by AI that anticipate what you might need and proactively you know, solve that. So that's kind of like call it the step two of our journey. Step two B um, was really around providing similar access to care through digital, virtual, and in-person care options by seamlessly integrating that. And then really the the next level of maturity from there on is, you know, a vast set of of capabilities around anticipating what might happen in a person's healthcare journey and proactively using either digital or virtual or you know in-person uh, bricks and mortar options to resolve that proactively it's almost like one of my colleagues omid Taloui, uses this analogy of a check engine light in a car mm -hmm. and if that if all the sensors and all the data that we have about ourselves could could then ultimately light up a check engine somewhere yeah. then we could more proactively you know address uh, the issues of health um, you know with our consumers and and keep them healthy that that's kind of the ultimate true north part. it's very you know very 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 informative and i think um it, it kind of is from a notional perspective what technology can really make a difference in healthcare and you know you've got to move from this whole episodal point in time care of actually dealing with what's happening at the thing we have to do that well and we do a really good job of that across the entire industry but turn that into preventative and more prescriptive care. Like you just like, it's a, it's a, you know, if you look at diseases like cancer, 70% of all cancers are preventable by, with lifestyle changes. I mean, there's a lot of education and access kind of things that comes in there, but I, you know, let me distill out the process that you actually use. And there's a couple of lessons that I learned from what, what you right now, which is important to call out. One is, you know, we're not talking a 50 people shop that you're transforming. <laughs> We're talking a company with 150 years of uh, you know history, rich experiences who are the masters of their game uh, and you know been driving transformation from different areas. So I'm pretty sure this doesn't go half as easy as actually you're making it sound right now, number one, right? Uh, and I wanna dive into that a little bit, but I think the best thing that you know you, I took away in that was like, look, taking that digital first mindset, how do you actually you know, in, 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 I think James Clear talks about it in habit, you know, the, the, the atomic habits where in say, 
you got to label yourself as something that you're not for you to become that some something else that you're not, right? So that digital first mindset, hey, we're going to do it. That's our right of first refusal is actually the digital first, right? So I think that's huge for anybody trying to even think about transforming uh, a, a, a historic company. Second, I think I love the way you, the, the, the initial focus on the process, the administrative process that you did, uh, that you focused on, shows another part of it, which is that's where you were really good at. So you knew that process inside out, right? Back to our earlier comment on making sure you know the data, knowing that it's actually, how like, heck, you know, am I looking at the right thing? Is this what I'm supposed to be uh, looking at? Is what I'm expecting? Is something wrong here? That comes in with the institutional experience you have. And then you focused on the area of strength that, you know, Elevance and at that time Anthem had. And it's the, the reason I call that out is there's a lot of, you know, digital transformations that are, you know, you hear enough case studies of things not to do, wherein a manufacturing company starts to do a digital platform for engaging suppliers. And then that was their first project. And, you know, it was like not really an area that you're good at, right? So don't try to do that, right? Um, and then uh, the other thing we, did, we didn't talk about much, but capability buildup, right? Which is like, how do you build, you know, you can't buy your way into, you know, AI or transformation, digital transformation in general. You've got to build it as a part of your, institutional muscle, capability set, and so forth. Um, and then, you know, like the, this gradual process of saying, as you, as you start solving problems that are, you know, meeting business goals and the investment is paying out and you're getting broader adoption and agreement and alignment. And I think in your book, you talk about the example of uh, someone on a member care uh, floor, you show them how digital technologies can make their you know, life easier, like other, their workflows easier, and that immediate light bulb goes on in their head, and all of a sudden they're a big champion. It's very, you know, true about large-scale organizational transformations about people first, right? So talk a little bit about um, people and organizational, right? You know, what kind of constructs you need to actually focus on, and then capabilities, right? What does that mean to actually building the organizational muscle in being able to drive these kind of transformations? Yeah, and. Um... I think great points, um, Ganesh. So I think maybe if I start with the second part of your question first, sure. the capability that's needed. I think frequently um, people sort of uh, assume that we're just directly referencing the talent around core AI, you know, uh, machine learning and, and data science kind of skills and the, the more of the, the core of the technology skills. And of course, that's important. And we, we spend a lot of time, you know, recruiting, curating and finding that talent and um, going to where the talent exists in, in uh, you know, cities like Austin, Chicago, you know, Palo Alto, Boston, and globally in places like, you know, Ireland, Israel, India. And so that continues to be kind of a major source of where we spend our time is to, to find and curate and, and grow that talent. Uh, but it's not just that. And it's also, mm -hmm. it's also data engineering. It's, it's uh, data subject matter expertise. It's process expertise. It's skills like Lean Six Sigma, which have been around for a while. And yep. it's, it's moving everyone collectively, you know, it's, it's moving our physicians, it's moving our care managers, it's moving our customer service, you know, advocates and the engineering teams together with a common purpose. And unfortunately our purpose is very compelling and clear, which is we've got yep. just one thing in, in my, our minds when we wake up, which is, is how do we improve the lives of our consumers that we serve? Ultimately, how do we improve the lives of humanity and the health of humanity? So. A, a workforce that's 100,000 strong that wakes up with that common purpose, there's an immense amount of power to that. But there's also a challenge, right? Which is uh, because every technology kind of has breathlessly makes the same claims about transformation and simplification and you know how, how it, it, it fundamentally disrupts everything. And then 
some have worked and some haven't. So there's a natural amount of skepticism about, is this really another thing that's going to fizzle out? And is this something that we should be betting on? And also near-term versus long-term ones. Mm. Frequently, I think we, we make the mistake, uh, as you were citing in your example, uh, in the manufacturer's case of going after a supply chain you know, platform. Those are very ambitious projects, which nothing wrong with it, except they have a high risk of failure and typically have a longer timeline to succeed. So you almost have to have a portfolio-based approach where there's enough short-term wins, near-term things that are relevant for our, for our business and our operational leaders that's making their lives better. So then if you're doing that, then you're able to, to create a little bit of the power of the pool, mm-hmm. which uh, you know our, my former colleague from, colleague from Lloyd, John Hagel, famously wrote about, which is there's push and pull. You know, so as technologies, you know, technologists, we, we often have to push a point of view on why tech can solve a certain problem. Yeah. But then ultimately, the power of, of pull is if the consumers of that are P&L leaders, our operational leaders, um, you, know, you know, other C-suite executives at companies are saying, no, I need that. You know, I want to have a digital first mindset. Well, show me how to do that. And that power of pull ultimately drives scale more, 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 uh, more quickly. And there's no sort of uh, secret formula to saying, you know, where, where do you reach that tipping point? But you have to work towards that to say, now the demand for these technologies, you know, sort of far exceeds the supply and you're keeping pace with kind of what the business is demanding of you. And that's the, the trick to this, which is you can qu- quickly get enamored by the, the shiny object. And, you know, for a while, everyone loves it. But then if it's not producing results and moving the core operational metrics of a company, you know, people just get disenfranchised with it and ultimately lose faith that it could work. So I think it's it's almost like thinking ahead to that that point of failure and going through the, you know, the uncertainties in a systematic manner within a big company like ours to move everyone together, you know, so that we were kind of achieving our goals together. That's kind of both the art and the science of, of a transformation, you know, yeah. um, no perfect formula for, for making it well. work, but it's got to be business-led and business-embedded for it to, to succeed. No, you know, it's it's a it's a masterclass in that, and it was a short, compressed version of it, but in a lot of different things to take away there, right? But I think I love how you also mentioned about the whole notion you got to get the hardest part in all is actually getting everybody together, and you got to think about it from a portfolio approach, the push and pull mentality, saying, Snack, there's a time in which you can create SWAT teams to go push, but then you want to get mass, mass scale adoption, you got to flip the thing and say, make it more pull. So then that becomes prioritizing a portfolio of capabilities that will move the needle, engage people and make a difference in their lives. So it becomes a demand rather than just a, a you know, a, a high degree of supply. This is awesome. Raji, my last question to you is, what are still some of the problems that are unsolved that you're focused on right now? It's mostly for a call to the innovators out here who's listening in. I think in um, healthcare in the U.S. in particular, Ganesh, I think the uh, fragmentation of the user experience is still a huge issue. Uh, so, for instance, uh, an Elevance consumer that, let's say, accesses uh, care and service capabilities via any of our, our digital assets or, or through one of our contact centers likely has a, a, a decent experience. Yeah. But when that experience you know, goes from there to a, a hospital, Perhaps they also have a great experience there. But then let's say you go to your primary care physician and perhaps you have a very long history with that primary care physician. The issue is that those three things exist in silos. We aren't Mm -hmm. able to effectively 
control the the connected dots across what should be a primary care visit, you know, being referred to a specialist, perhaps a you know a prescription being refilled, to having an administrative question about what's covered by my benefits, uh, how should I use my HSA account, for example, to pay it or not. Uh, all of those things tend to get answered in silos, thus kind of creating this this frustrating experience in the aggregate for our consumers, which. While any one experience may be okay, the aggregate is always something that leaves much to be desired. Mm. And so I think the, the big challenge for us going forward in the next kind of two to, three, two to three years is how do we simplify that experience so that uh, the same delightful experience you have uh, while shopping for things on Amazon, for example, uh, could be then replicated in healthcare where the, the multiple disparate experiences that comprise of, of the average experience can then have a, a common facade that's personalized, uh, delightful, simple to use, and always surfaces and emphasizes the human-to-human -human interaction wherever possible. I don't think we've cracked the nut on that. And once that's that's that we break through that, I'm very optimistic that that can happen. Uh, then imagine all the longitudinal insights we have about every interaction, how it then can improve the quality of care, reduce medical errors, make physicians more effective, reduce their burnout, and ultimately uh, want to have consumers really engaged in their own health. Because today, you know, people care about peripherally or when there's an issue, of course, there's an acute focus and you know, I got to get better. But every other time when you're, you're relatively well, you know, you don't think about it. Like, so how do we make sure that there's ongoing engagement to keep people that are healthy, healthy? And then people that are either kind of transitioning into being chronically ill or acutely ill or have an issue, that we're able to anticipate those needs and then bring them back together. So exciting, you know, sort of set of challenges ahead for sure uh, in being able to solve it with all of the constraints that we have in our industry, but one that I'm very optimistic that we can absolutely uh, solve together. Sure. You know, I, I, I love that too, because, you know, the, the, today we're brute forcing to solve that, which is like, how do I look at the data, build the inside, build a longitudinal record, and then go say, let's go do it. But if you bring the, consumer into the ecosystem and deliver it through the way you deliver the experience, make them be a participant in the process, unlocks a lot of value. Rajiv, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for spending the time. Last question, where do, where can the listeners and viewers find you on the internet? How can they find you on the internet? I'm on uh, LinkedIn at uh, Rajiv Ranaki, uh, also Twitter at Rajiv Ranaki. So both of those channels are uh, quite active and look forward to engaging uh, your audience uh, on those channels, as well as thank you for having me. It was a delightful uh, conversation. Thank you, Rajiv. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, I encourage you to do three things. Number one, share with your friends and family. If someone else can learn from this, get inspired and take action, they need to. Number two, subscribe so you do not miss a single episode. You can do it at your favorite podcast location or at youtube.com. Number three, let me know if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for me or my guests. And check out storiesinai.com to access show notes and more resources. Thank you for listening. See you next time.